Perfect Stranglers contains graphic and explicit content suitable for mature listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Well, hi there, guys. Welcome to Perfect Stranglers. This is Kylie. And I'm Bree. And last night, or I guess not last night, yesterday late afternoon, um, it was we dressed up for Halloween for work Halloween stuff, and uh, everyone was like kind of half ass, like not half ass dressed up. They were whole ass dressed up, but not in the Kylie goes extra type of way. You know what I mean? They Mm -hmm. were normal people dressed up. Yeah. And I put together the Halloween uh, get together virtual thing with trivia costume contest all that fun stuff right but before that we had to do actual work meetings and i got on with everyone to do a work meeting and i'm i made the background of my zoom to be in an insane asylum i was dressed up as like a creepy uh jack-o'-lantern with my halloween top on with uh you know pumpkins on it all that good stuff and i was sitting there and they're like oh my god kylie how are you gonna get that off you look so good and everyone's like oh yeah and then oh everyone else dressed up y'all look good and they're like they said something and i was like i was gonna say i understood the assignment like tiktok but i was i would i understood the I just am extra, and they're like, what are you going to say? And I said, I understand the assignment. And they all bursted out laughing. I was like, you guys get it. And they're like, well, yeah, we get it. We can't be a social media company and not understand we, I understood the assignment. Like, sometimes I I forget. Like, I feel, I don't know if any other, like, early 30s person feels this way. I mentally still feel like I'm 25 or 23 or whatever. And people yeah. think I'm, like, immature and young and not an adult. So yeah. these people who are in their mid to late 30s, maybe even early 40s, it's hard to tell. Um, I forget they're not that much older than me. So, of course, they know what I'm talking about. I mean, I guess. But also, like, I feel like I, you know, when you're, like, younger, when you're, like, you know, like, just out of high school and you feel like you kind of know, like, all the newest trends and stuff, like, just yeah. because, like, all your friends do and it's, like, you know, all in your social media and everything like that. Like, yeah. I still kind of, I still mostly feel tuned into that. So, same. And, but I don't, I don't, and especially because I have um, a 16-year-old stepdaughter, too. She's 16 uh, now? Yeah. She's Holy turned 16. shit, Brie. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, I, I don't, but I don't know. Like, I don't really i guess i don't socialize with a lot of people my age and so like i don't know i mean i don't really socialize with a lot of people period okay (laughs) (laughs) so it's like i don't know like what everyone else is watching and looking at and you know i can tell you with confidence that so here's okay here here are my thoughts on this whole thing i think that so when our parents were our age i would i'm gonna say between the ages of like 30 and 40 okay because the people that at work they they also have younger kids so they are around my age okay I've like I said, I forget that they're close to my age and i look at them like they are whole ass adults like they have their own houses 
granted i'm pretty sure i won't the only like divorced single mom on my team it's a small team but that like there are like 25 people 30 but that kind of already makes me feel a little bit odd but also like i'm also i think the only one like going out and having like a single person life so i go out yeah. and like socialize and go on dates and stuff um but I think when our parents were our age, they didn't have social media. So the trends that they saw were just through their kids. So they weren't aware of it. With us, we are aware of the trends, whether we follow them or not is a whole separate thing. But at least we're aware of it. So we're not out of the loop. Like I remember when like my brother would wear trip pants or jinko jeans or we would listen to metal or emo music. And my mom's like, what? Like whatever you're going to do. Like I don't get it. This is a thing now. Like whatever. Where yeah. us, we, we get it. Like we understand it. And it's for, yeah. it's far more digestible for us now. Yeah. So it makes don't, us seem younger. Don't you ever like, okay, like do you think of like your mom at your age now? Yeah. Like, she was does, literally pregnant with me at my age now. Like, okay. Like my mom, I just think of like, I look back at like pictures and it's like, I feel like I look and dress and like my style and everything is like, a lot younger looking than my mom well not specifically my mom but just that whole generation um yes like at that age and then if you like if you ha have ever seen like old like I don't know like 70s shows or like I don't know anything like anything like old older from like 60 50s 60s 70s and you look at like a 30 year old person from the 50s or 60s or 70s they look like a 50 year old person today yes like so, the style and like how they dress and act and everything yes they look old and i think a lot of that has to do with lifestyle changes so back then you weren't told to drink a shit ton of water you smoked you put baby oil on your skin you went out tanning like that was the peak that era was the peak of convenience foods packaged foods that type of things coming out um and then oh, 80s to 90s everything was low fat you eat a lot of carbs that's when like the food pyramid started getting um pimped out a lot which is a whole different problematic thing on its own because it was bought by kellogg the the, the theory of a food pyramid that you need to eat grains kellogg owns that theory so by using the food pyramid, they are able to sell more of their products because they put money into shaping what the food pyramid is now. Anyway, yeah. so I think a lot of it has to do with lifestyle, things like that. Um, and well, and also, like, probably societal things, too. Yeah. Because it's, like, just their, like, like how they present themselves and, mm -hmm. like, dress. Like, they dress like they're a grandma. Yeah. Yep. When they're, like, 30 years old, like, in, like, the 70s shows or the you know, whatever. Yeah. Know. Speaking of that 70s show, I think I said this <laughs> in the chat, but so when that 70s show premiered, it premiered in the 90s. So that was a 20 year difference. They're coming out with a that 90s show and it's a 30 year difference. Isn't that making I, you see? Isn't that fucking wild? I just had an existential crisis. It's a 30 year difference. So when the 70s show came out, we were like, oh my God, this is what it was like in the 70s. That's crazy. It's an even bigger gap. And uh, it doesn't seem that long ago. No. I still Seems cannot. like it was 10 years ago or something. I can't grasp 
I can't grasp it. Like I love being a millennial because we've gotten to witness and be a part of and interact with such a huge shift in technology and lifestyle and like ideas and the way society views things. Like we've got to be there for all of it and adapt to all of it. And I think that's why a lot of us are so good at like saying like it is what it is, whatever happens, happens. And we're really good at like adapting our thought process to new ideas and I wouldn't say as a whole we all are but a lot of us are really good at that because we got to go through all of that and we are far more accepting and I like that like new generations are even more accepting that's a like a generalization but for the most part they like more accepting of change either in like ideas or technology or anything like that right I mean except you know in places where they're still (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) that's fine this is fine this is all fine yeah but anyway yeah that 70 show is 30 or that 70 show is 20 years that 90 show is gonna be a 30 year difference and um i will give you all time to go ahead and cry to yourselves for a minute on that because that's fucking wild right a moment of silence (laughs) a moment of silence for for us feeling like old people do you (sighs) remember when they did um they tried to do that 80s show yeah. And it completely failed. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of the Gen Zers are going to be interested in that 90s show because they're trying to bring back like that 90s fashion and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I just really hope that they nail it and they get what it actually is. And I honestly kind of hope that they they delve into some of the bigger things that happened in that time, like O.J. Simpson, Monica Lewinsky, Yeah, that that type of thing. And I hope they do it in yeah. more of a com- not like you can do it in a comedic way, but more in a like lighthearted way. Cuz yeah. like, I think that 70s show touched on some pretty heavy things, but it was in more of a lighthearted way. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Anyway, we've hit the 10-minute rambling mark. Do you want to do housekeeping? <laughs> sure. Don't forget to like, rate, and uh subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get seen and it helps people find us also don't forget to subscribe to us on whatever platform you listen to us on so that you never miss an episode we want to hear from you on our social media we have facebook instagram and twitter uh we also want to hear your stories of true weird things that have happened to you so please email us at contact at perfectstranglers.com and while you're at it check out our website at perfectstranglers.com. What are we talking about today? Perfect. Love it. Perfect Stranglers. Um, we are going to be doing something that I have been putting on the back burner for a very long time. <laughs> we are going to be talking about the poet of Wichita. Okay. So I'm going to forewarn you about, this is kind of a long one, but the majority of this that I'm going to be talking about is, okay, We like to do our own research. We do all of our own research. We try very hard to like piecemeal all of these things together into one cohesive timeline. Like there's a lot that goes into these. This is one of the only episodes I've done where I only have one source and I'm pretty much going to read an article that I edited into a more like shortened. I took like half of the fluff out basically because we have things to do. Um, So it's written by Corey Mead. It's on medium.com. Um, he he wrote it in more of a storytelling format, and I think he pulled a lot of it from a book. Um, but yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about the witch or the the poet of Wichita. Do you know anything about it? I know nothing. 
I know Wichita is in Kansas. Yeah, I had such a hard time spelling Wichita. I would spell it with a T, like a witch, like W I T C H. Oh. But it's W I C H I T A. Oh. Yeah, it okay. was like the word definitely. Like I can't spell that. <clears throat> All right. Late one night in Wichita, Kansas, June 1977, Ruth Finley, she was a 47-year-old mom of two grown-ass sons, was uh, startled by her phone ringing. Keep in mind, it's a landline. This is 1977. Oh, 77. Got it. Yep. This is a landline. Okay. No caller ID. This is just a phone on a cord. Um, So she was startled by the ringing of her phone. She had just went through a really traumatic day. Um, That afternoon, her husband, Ed, collapsed from an apparent heart attack after working in their backyard. So Ed was laying in a hospital bed as Ruth is spending a night alone in her own home. Her kids are grown, like I said, so they're, like, out of the house. They're just, like, nesters. Um, And she was really unfamiliar with being home alone because she, her husband came home every night. So this is, like, really weird for her to be home alone. Kind of freaky. Mm-hmm. So listening to the radio of her being home alone, she was trying to listen to the radio, you know, entertain herself, didn't provide much help in the news because at this point, the BTK strangler was v- running rampant in the news all the time. He had been doing what he was doing for like three years at this point. Every Everyone was talking about it. Everyone is on high alert. So there was not really a lot of calming a woman alone in her own home at this point. So Ruth answered the phone that rang, but instead of a nurse or a doctor to fill her in on what Ed's actual diagnosis was, Ruth heard an unfamiliar male voice on the line. It said, is this Ruth Smock from Fort Fort Scott, Kansas? Smock was Ruth's maiden name, and she hadn't lived in Fort Scott for decades, so this question was very out of left field for her. Yes, it is, she answered. I know all about that night. The voice said. Ruth froze. She knew exactly which night this stranger was referring to. Confirming her suspicions, she listened in in shock as the caller began reading out loud from an October 15, 1946 article from the Fort Scott, Kansas um, Tribune. It said, Branded on both thighs by a hot flat iron, apparently by a sex maniac, Ruth Smock, 16-year-old Fort Scott High School girl, was resting today at the home of her parents following an attack upon her early last night. Holy shit. So, so that night in 1946, Ruth had just returned home from buying groceries when she heard the screen door open behind her as a 16-year-old. Suddenly, she was grabbed from behind by a tall man who began tearing at her clothes. The intruder wore a dirty, a pair of dirty bib overalls and looked to be about 50 years old. Struggling to break free, Ruth jabbed the man in his eyes with her thumbs and i'll fix you so no one will look at you again he snarled right back at her after she jabbed his eye out the man wow. shoved a rag doused in chloroform over ruth's mouth and quickly <gasps> ruth was unconscious the final image she saw before passing out was of a man heating the flat iron on the stove when she awoke she had first degree burns on both thighs blood oozed from scratches on her face arms and legs so now on the phone 31 years later, a male caller asked Ruth if she still wore her brand from the Flatirons. I don't know what you're talking about, Ruth said. The man told Ruth that he worked for a construction company that was tearing down old houses in Fort Scott after he'd found a number on yellowing newspapers in the wall. The article about Ruth was among the the papers that he found. If she didn't give him money, he said he would spread the news of the teenage attack, claiming, I know where you work. Terrified, Ruth, Ruth wait, hung up. Wait, so he said 
that his threat was that he was going to tell people that she was branded. Yeah. That she but was that was already in the news. But it was already in the newspaper 30 years ago. And yeah. probably everyone already knows about it. Everyone from Fort Scott knew about it. So we'll get into it a little bit. But her fear was that anyone would find out about this. Because she lived in a very conservative rural family. And if anyone found out in her life nowadays, any of her current friends found out that this ever happened to her, she feared that she would be incredibly shamed about it. So even though it's like public knowledge, it's not like public knowledge to where people in her life nowadays know that this ever happened. I mean, I guess. And no, like, I get, I get, like, wanting to put that behind you and not wanting to, like, talk about it. But, like, mm-hmm. I, why would you be, you're the victim. She has a very fucked up mentality. We'll get to it. Okay. Yeah. Um, He said, I know where you work. Terrified, Ruth hung up the phone and tried to get some rest. So Ed remained in the hospital hospital for another week, which meant that Ruth had to be home alone um, for a whole nother week. And every day she anxiously awaited the phone to ring, but no one ever, the phone didn't ring again. Then it, it was this dude. So Ed returned home and Ruth did her very best to put the man's threats out of her mind. But later that summer, Ruth was sitting in her office. Um, she was a secretary at Southern Bell Telephone Company. An envelope was put on her desk. Her name was like haphazardly written across the top of it. She opened the envelope and her stomach kind of turned at what she found. Picking up the envelope, she um, opened it and found a yellowed newspaper clipping that fell onto her desk. Picking up the clipping, she knew again exactly what it was. It was from the Scott Tribune headline, 1946. It said, sex maniac uses flat irons in branding of local high school girl. So she was really scared, not wanting any drama and unsure of what to even do with this clipping at this point. She tore it into little shreds and put it in her garbage can at her desk. So over the next few months, Ruth picked up the phone at home and heard the same unidentified male voice. Um, Ruth would begin to hang up the phone before he could even say anything more. During that same time period, if Ed would answer the phone, he would only hear a dial tone on the end and it would hang up. So Ruth and Ed valued nothing more than like a bland, boring life. They were children of um, poverty-stricken farmers and homemakers in rural Kansas. They struggled to survive during the Great Depression. Their parents were really harsh um, to them, physically abusive, mentally abusive, that whole thing. Um, They were taught that emotions were very much meant to be repressed and bottled in. Tears were both forbidden. Tears were forbidden in their household. Um, And calling attention to oneself, no matter good or bad, if something positive, negative happened to you, if you were sexually assaulted, you bottled that in and you did not tell anyone. You're supposed to be viewed as modest, responsible people, polite, and just ordinary. So that was a huge reason why she didn't want anyone to know that this had happened to her. Because she was raised. Yeah, she was raised to be like, I don't care what happened to you. You don't tell anyone. You blend in with the crowd at all costs. Wow. Yep. And so Ed was raised that way as well. So I don't then like in that. Au- yeah, I don't like it either. I no. I couldn't do that. That's exactly the opposite of what you're supposed to do. It is. And we've talked about it. That mentality raised the boomers, which raised us, which you know what I mean? And that you try and break that cycle of bottling up those emotions, 
because it causes nothing but harm to you and everyone around you. Yeah. That's why therapy exists. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yep. So in August of 77, Ruth was window shopping downtown Wichita when a man popped out of a really crowded crosswalk and started walking right next to her. At first, she was like, whatever, it's just another dude on the sidewalk. But then he said, you've done such a good job working this week. You can take the weekend off. And Ruth shooketh, looked over, and she took in as many details as she could. She said the man was in his late 40s. He was five foot nine and skinny. He had a plaid shirt on, jeans, and white canvas shoes. His black hair was graying at the temples. He said, you work for the telephone company, don't you? Ruth just tried to ignore the dude. He said, what do you do there? Are you an operator? When Ruth didn't answer, the man told her he'd recently won some money in Las Vegas. Would you like to go to Las Vegas sometime? He said. Ruth just stayed silent and kept walking. Uh, switching conversational gears, the man said, the camera reflects the true quality of one's soul. What a creep. So, yep. At this point, Ruth was like more annoyed than scared. She said, I'm waiting for my husband. Um... He said, and her and Ed both worked downtown in the downtown area. The guy said, are you still married? Uh, when Ruth failed to respond, the man said, I like your face. I'll see you again. You can count on that. Some people's fantasies are other people's nightmares. So she kept walking wow. and then Ed quickly came out to meet her. Ruth told him about the creep who followed her. And Ed said, it's probably just some guy looking to like pick someone up. Let's, you know, put this behind us and keep an eye out but it's probably some dude wanting to pick you up so ed's thought on that seemed to be correct she saw nothing more from the man for almost a year um but in june of 78 she was once again shopping downtown and she passed an alleyway between stores and she felt someone reach out and yank at her wrist it was the man from the previous summer uh he said he said ruth get back here you stupid bitch and talk to me Mm-hmm. And Ruth yanked her arm free, like bolted across the street into Macy's where she rode the escalator to the fifth floor, realizing where she was at this point. <clears throat> she like calmed down, called Ed, asked him to come pick her up. When Ed met her at Macy's, uh, Ruth told him about what had just happened. She also, for the first time, told him about the harassing phone calls and about the guy from last year. So Ed oh. was like... So he didn't know about the phone calls? He had calls? no idea. She had been bottling this in and keeping it to himself, keeping it to herself. Oh, my God. Because every time, because, you know, he'd say hello, the guy would hang up. Yeah. Wow. But she answered huge. I thought he knew about it. No, he had no idea oh, my God. because she has to keep everything to herself. Well, no wonder he thought it was just somebody trying to, yep. you know, I don't just know. Just pick her up. Yeah. Pick her up. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So, um, Ed was like, what the fuck? He filed their police report, but the police blew it off and took no action to follow up on the situation. Yeah, um, keep in mind, BTK is still going on during this time. Uh, so that October, Ruth received an unmarked envelope in the mail with her name on the front of it in like tall black letters. Inside, Ruth found a single sheet of paper with the words, fuck you, fuck the police, fuck the telephone company, give me money or you will be hurt. So Ruth, um, was alone when she got this letter she like paced and paced until ed got home again no cell phone so she couldn't like text him and be like dude you need to get home quick this happened uh ed said this is bad 
And so they made another visit to the police. So on November 6th, Ruth and Ed drove to the Wichita Police Department headquarters. Um, They were directed to the Criminal Investigations Department. Uh, Lieutenant Bernie Drotsky, D-R-O-W-A-T-Z-K-Y, Drotsky. Yeah, that's probably how I'd say it. Okay, Bernie Drotsky. Uh, he had been a detective for 34 um, years, and he greeted the couple in the office. Normally, his division wouldn't handle cases like Ruth's, but because the BTK Strangler, now three years into what he was doing in Wichita, was also known for sending threatening letters, they took it a lot more seriously. It's really sad that it takes a serial killer to take assaults on a woman seriously. Yeah. But anyway. And usually, even if it is a serial killer, usually it takes a couple killings for them to be like, oh, this is really something we got to keep an eye on. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Because, you know, women, we're emotional. We exaggerate everything. (laughs) (sighs) So uh, Ruth told um, the Droutsky. That's how we're saying it, right? Droutsky? 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 I I don't fucking know. I want to say Droutsky because I had a teacher... Yeah. And we called him Draz. Anyway, um, told him about the strange phone calls and the two times she was approached on the street. Uh, She had no enemies that she knew of. They didn't have anyone seeking her out. She didn't, like, piss anyone off. She pretty much laid low. Um, So they were trying to figure out who would be sending this, and they really couldn't come up with anyone. So just Lieutenant... We're going to call him Lieutenant. Uh, Didn't really, like, say much. He was pretty underwhelmed by the evidence that she had. His caseload was super fucking full, especially with BTK tips. And he didn't have time to pursue this case. So it kind of just sat on his desk. Well, the following following week, another letter appeared in the Finley's mailbox, this time demanding that Ruth pay $100. It said, I can tell anybody... I can tell if anybody is watching me. Don't be a dumb bitch again and blow this. I will try to be your friend, but when you're a dumb bitch, I don't like you. This time, you talk to me when I call you. So the letter finished off with a poem that said, Wherever you go on water or land, you still got to pay or I tell about your brand. I'm smart and know things to do. You talk to people I despise, like the police and the telephone spies. So it's a shitty poem, but it's a poem, I guess. Yeah. So Ruth brought the letters to Lieutenant at the police headquarters, and as more letters began appearing in their mailbox, Ed delivered them to Lieutenant, who passed them on to police um, for fingerprinting. The phone calls continued as well, though Ed, though when Ed answered, he usually was only greeted by a dial tone. Um, the caller would just hang up. The mail voice would ask for Ruth when Ruth answered. Um, but then the calls finally stopped. And Ruth and Ed became hopeful that Ruth Stalker had moved on. So fast forward, so that was like spring-summer. Fast forward to November 21st, 1978. Ruth was on her lunch break from work, and she was running errands downtown. She wore a red print blouse, black jacket, and black pants. As she crossed the street after leaving a greeting card shop, her path was suddenly blocked by a bluish-green 1968 Chevy Bel Air that screeched to a halt on the curb right in front of her. The only other person she could see was an elderly woman walking up the street kind of far up. 
So Ruth froze in horror as she, as the same man who had confronted her twice previously, she said, leaped from the car. Um, this time she said that he wore black frame glasses, a jean jacket, and a sweater. Have you got any money? He asked, delivering a sharp kip to Ruth's shin, she said. So as she folded over in pain, the man grabbed her and shoved her into the car seat's uh, like tattered, junk-filled back seat. Uh, he climbed in next to her and slammed the door. Uh, in the driver's seat, the man uh, was drinking from a bottle wrapped in a paper bag, she recalls. Ruth's attacker, um, there was another man in the front that was drinking from the bag. So Ruth and the attacker in the back and the guy drinking from the paper bag is in the front. Ruth's attacker called him Buddy and Ruth looked... Ruth looked frantically for a means to, like, escape, but the door handle on her side was broken. On the floor, she saw a gas can, pieces of concrete, chains, and rags. The car's rear left window was covered in plastic, and um, the torn-up dashboard, she said, had a bunch of, like, white tape on it. Ruth's abductor told her to give the per give her give him the purse, and she was, like, trying to paw through it, and then he took it and was pawing through it. And they found a safe deposit key for the bank. So one of the men allegedly was like, dude, this is it. This is what we've been looking for. She has a shit ton of money. Let's go for it. But the um, mood in the car quickly turned when they saw Lieutenant's business card. And they showed each other the business card for the lieutenant. And so they stopped what they were doing and said, you dumb fucking bitch. And then they put... Um, the concrete brick and they slammed it into the head of Ruth and she collapsed in the car seat. Oh my God. So as she was collapsed, they were driving all around Wichita into random streets on a random route. Finally, Ruth woke up and as she woke up, they were still driving around and they said, do you like beer? Um, we'll get some beer and have a party. I'll be real nice to you. They said, finally, four hours into this whole ordeal, Ruth said, I have to pee. She um, was like crossing her legs and wiggling and she said, I'm going to go throw up if I don't get to a restroom. And they said, they laughed and said, no, you're not going to go to the bathroom. You won't do that. So Ruth's abductor um, said to the driver, buddy, you know what? We need to, we need to stop. We need to pee. I don't want her to ruin my car. So they, <laughs> the car with duct tape on the dashboard. So um, they stopped to a small park near West 21st Street. And before the men let Ruth out of the car, they made her remove her shoes and sweater so that she wouldn't run away. She'd be too cold to run away. She had to come back and get it. Um, no. I would still run. <laughs> yeah, same. So <laughs> when they reached, like, this little lake area, the men let go of Ruth's arms, saying that he would pee first. As he unzipped his fly, Ruth um, took the can of mace that she had found in her purse and pressed the oh, nozzle. Oh, hell yeah. I was going to suggest that. So, yep, she had a she had a can of mace in her purse. The man, she said, collapsed, coughing as Ruth um, bolted off barefoot into the park. Yes. Uh, her feet were freezing, turning numb from the cold. Ruth stayed crouched into in the dark until long after the men stopped shouting for her. Once her feet were too cold to bear it any longer, she peeked over a small, like, hill, and she saw that the car was gone, and she ran across the street to a liquor store where the owner immediately called the police, who also called Ed, who was, like, worried sick and reported her missing because her work reported her missing because she was running errands on her lunch. Yeah. So, um, I'm sorry if you guys can hear water or something in the background. That's my neighbor's upstairs. He, I think he's taking a shower. But you can, I can hear the pipes going. Oh. 
just throwing that out there. Um, anyway, so at the police station, Ruth reported that kidnappers had stole, stolen her $315 paycheck in a $100 U.S. savings bond. Um, not wanting to, like, further alarm Ruth and Ed, Lieutenant Droutsky kept private his growing suspicion that Ruth's tormentor might actually be BTK. Um, overlaps of keywords that was between BTK's letters and the letters received by Ruth had the police on high alert. The next day, Detective Richard Zordeman drove to the park where Ruth had escaped her kidnappers. He found Ruth's shoes and sweater and traced her footprints, but wasn't able to recover any additional clues of the whole situation. For the next five weeks, Ruth's or sorry, for the next five weeks, detectives in the downtown area threw like this giant blanket of protection around Ruth during her lunch hours, but they didn't observe any suspicious activity. So it seems like this person was like on again, off again, would stalk for a little bit and then hide away, stalk for a little bit, hide away. Looking to establish contact with the suspect, Lieutenant participated in a talk show sponsored by KEYN Radio. He described for the audience Ruth's strange story from her assault as a teen up until now. Um, as this show progressed, Ruth and um, three detectives listened in on studio phone lines um, to monitor incoming callers to see if they could match a voice to the stalker, but they got no hits. During the same period, um, they had, or sorry, sir, during this whole period, Ruth was also having daily headaches and really bad stomach cramps, like nervous stomach, nauseous yeah. type vibes. Um, and she knew that her symptoms were probably psychosismatic. She never considered requesting help for any of these symptoms she was having. Her -hmm. mother had taught her that asking for help was a sign of weakness and should be pretty much avoided. Ruth also, um, did not want to be the object of any gossip or speculation. So in her world, calling attention to oneself was like a sin, basically. So she just kind of dealt with her misery. In December of that year... Lieutenant received a letter from her attacker accusing the detective of protecting a whore from death. So now Lieutenant Drowski was receiving these letters. Over the winter into the spring, um, the letters for Ruth kept piling up. The words were written in, um, they were rhyming. Ed called the writer the poet as the messages were more violent and like sexual as they kept on coming. So that's where the poet came from. So in July of 79, a year later, the letter stopped. However, Ruth and Ed, again, were like hopeful that the poet had moved on. They, at this point, felt comfortable enough to plan their annual summer trip to Colorado. So preparing for the trip, Ruth was like, you know what? I'm going to get myself a new pair of jeans. So she, um, on August 13th of 79, after work, she told Ed she was heading to Dillard's at the mall um nice. ed felt nervous about ruth going out by herself um but she's like you know what i'll be fine the poet's been away for a while i think i think we'll be good so ruth went shopping at dillard's walked out of the department store so think maybe like seven o'clock at night i would say because she probably got done with work had dinner went out shopping seven eight o'clock at night kind of dusk in the summer yeah with her new jeans um and the parking lot at this point was pretty much deserted there was only a few cars left Ruth was rushing to her vehicle, as any woman would, and was scanning the parking lot for any potential strangers that she didn't know. Um, She was almost to her car, it was a two-door Oldsmobile, when she heard a male voice call out, Hey Ruth, I didn't know you were going to make it this easy. She turned around and recognized a man who had kidnapped her one year earlier. 
Ruth ran for her car. Before she could unlock the door, the man came up from behind her and grabbed her wrist. She shoved, um, who then, he then grabbed her head and shoved it against a wheel, or sorry, shoved it against the window. Get in, he ordered, saying that he wanted to take her to a bridge near August Airport Road. So he threw um, a brown paper shopping bag through a partially opened rear window into the back seat. The bag had clothesline rope, white tape, a red bandana, and a half-empty bottle of wine. We'll go to a nice place where it says, keep out, he said. So Ruth was fighting back, and she actually ended up breaking free and tried to step around the car. The man then took out an eight-inch boning knife and stabbed her, twice in the back and once in the side. On the third stab, the the knife was sticking out of Ruth of Ruth's body and she felt the man lose his grip on the knife. She ran to the passenger side seat, slammed the door and began rolling up the window because this was all happening on her car. Okay. Uh So the man got up and began reaching into the window, the driver's side window, but his hand got caught as she was like crank rolling it up. Yeah. And he took out the hand as she kept on rolling up, but his brown glove remained stuck between the window and the door frame. She busted out of there into the car the gloves still dangling in her rearview mirror she could just make out the man like staring as she drove away like oh my god she got out she should have turned around and hit him with the car she slammed that shit in the reverse and just right dang so uh ruth was dizzy out of fear and adrenaline as she turned from the parking lot into traffic um when she stopped at a red light she finally realized that yo i was stabbed she looked at the left side of her and there was still a knife sticking out of it she then was starting to feel the pain and there was blood dripping down into the car seat so at the corner of douglas and rock road ruth spotted a gas station again no cell phones pulled into its driveway stopping in front of the payphone and dialed the police number that she had memorized by now it was a direct line to captain al thimich which is lieutenant drowskowski's drowskis drowatskis sorry guys boss she began to say yo i'm ruth and he's like i know who you are what's going on and because she was the topic of everything over the past couple years with this happening um she Mm -hmm. said i've been stabbed and gave the location uh thimich said he would send an officer over immediately but ruth was really scared that her attacker might show up at this gas station she didn't want to hang around so she hung up the phone got back into her car and even though she was feeling weak and dizzy from adrenaline and blood loss um she drove the five minutes back to her house uh, Ed was also called. Um, the lieutenant called Ed after he got off the phone with her, and Ed was uh, waiting for her at the um, out the out like on the porch. As soon uh-huh. as he saw her pulled up, pull up, he got into the car and drove her to the hospital. Oh, good. So, lieutenant met the Finleys at the hospital, where he found Ruth laying on an emergency room bed, a knife still sticking out of her because they were scared that if you take the knife out, you'll lose more blood. Yeah. Um, so when he asked what happened, Ruth lifted her body to show him the long knife sticking out of her. And apparently, Drowski whistled at the size. He gave a... Uh, I guess. Oh, my jeez. <laughs> That's what it I said. Mean, I, don't, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> you got stabbed, see? <laughs> a minute later uh he discussed the situation with her emergency room doctor um at that point the knife kind of just slid from Ruth's body and clattered on the floor and then she began losing <laughs> blood um they patched her up the doctors found deep gashes on ruth's back and left arm two inch deep wound where the knife had been lodged 
um, any deeper, the doctor said, and then that probably would have killed her. Oh, God. So that night, the Wichita News featured the headline, Woman Stabbed Resisting Abduction. A follow-up article in the Eagle Beacon newspaper included a police sketch of the suspect and a warning that he was extremely dangerous. Drowitsky told the newspaper that the suspect had been writing letters to at least one other woman in the Wichita area. I never got any further information on what other woman that was, um, but I think that they were linking it to BTK, is I think what they were doing in the newspaper. Oh. In, in the newspaper. Because Drowski told the newspaper that the suspect had been writing letters to at least one other person. So I think that was a BTK thing. Because that was never uh-huh. mentioned again. Yeah. So Ruth stayed in the hospital for nine days and then she was released. A nurse did tell the police that a man fitting her description of Ruth's attacker had visited the nurse's station to inquire about her. Um, and Drowski was positive that this was likely the suspect. However, there were no cameras in the hospital, you know. So yeah. he's. Uh, Drowski stayed at the Finley's house for 48 hours after she got out in case he still in case the guy showed up but no one no one came excuse me that September Ed hit on the idea of trying to contact Ruth's attacker by leaving messages in the newspaper in a classified section of the Eagle Beacon um, so he placed an ad that said poet tell me what I owe you RSF so that I don't know what RSF stands for something Ruth Scott Finley Ruth. maybe yeah 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 so local reporters quickly picked up on the nickname the poet um employing it from their coverage of ruth's case so then he forever was known as the poet and the poet ended up signing his letters the poet so he's like yo i have a name i'm gonna use the poet yeah he also began communicating with ed through the classifieds so in October, the Eagle Beacon revealed that the poet had been sending the newspaper taunting letters over the past six months as well. Meanwhile, the poet appeared to be stalking the Finley's house. One morning, Ruth found a letter from the poet on their front porch, and at night, loud noises, she said, would emanate from their garage. With no other leads at this point, the police decided to try hypnosis, setting up sessions between Ruth and Dr. Donald Schreg. Um, he was a Wichita psychologist and police consultant who also worked on the BTK case. So Ruth found she liked hypnosis. She found it calming. And through that, she um, was able to recall the situations that she said were happening to her. Um, she did grow agitated at it, but she was able to recall things that she remembered about the kidnapping. She repeatedly was yelling, I want to get out of the car. I want to get out of the car during one of her sessions. And a few new details about her attacks emerged. Um, the poet has serious, seri- has very serious emotional and mental problems. Dr. Schrag said, it's likely he has psychological treatment and it's likely he's had psychological treatment and probably needs to be seen and be in a state institution. He also said that the poet's letters showed signs of high intelligence. Mm-hmm. So in January of 1980, Ruth's case was taken over by Captain Mike Mill um, while Drowski was promoted to vice and organized crime. Drowski and his wife had grown really close to Ruth and Ed over the previous two years. The two couples actually socialized together. They went out to dinners and stuff. Mike Hill had taken the previous had taken over um, the department the previous year um, from the special investigation section, which was um, spearheading Ruth's case. So he was familiar with it, but he wasn't close like Drowski was. 
He'd also put in long hours on the BTK case. So unlike Drotsky, Hill had no personal connection with either the Finley with either of the Finleys. And so he reviewed the files on the poet, and he couldn't help but wonder if Ruth and Ed might be the culprit. But he quickly changed his mind after reading the medical report, which established very firmly that Ruth could not have stabbed herself with such force and at the angle with which she did. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Drotsky and the other detectives assured Hill that the devoted Ed would never hurt his wife. So they're like, did Ed stab you? But, like, he wasn't even there. Like, he was accounted for. Right. So the poet very quickly took note in the change of command of who was in charge of the case. And he wrote a letter um, to Hill, actually, that said, there once was a captain who had an asshole for a heart. (laughs) I don't know. Wow. Yep. So Christmas Eve... Uh, the Finley's phone lines were cut for a second time, leading Southwestern Bell to bury the replacement lines underground. Ruth and Ed fitted their back gate with an alarm system. Captain Hill installed surveillance. So there were cameras back then, but not like used very often. Right. He installed a surveillance camera in their backyard and assigned detectives to monitor the cameras 24 hours a day from the Finley's dining room. On January 25th of 1980, Ruth reported an afternoon phone call at work from the poet who told her he left a surprise for her in the office lobby. Well, when detectives arrived, they found a 12-inch butcher knife wrapped in a red bandana in the lobby's phone booth. Remember, there was a red bandana in the car um, when she was kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Two witnesses reported seeing a man at the phone booth who resembled the police sketch of the poet. The poet said, Shut your eyes and think of the 12-inch blade. Will you remember the hole it made? Dream of me and obey my commands. Think of me with a knife in my hands. In the package. The frequency of the letters increased over the following weeks. On February 19th, he sent Ruth a Valentine's Day message that said, Here's to you, here's to you a tender Valentine, red with blood and tied with twine. Nothing too much for a Valentine, gone from here by a whim of mind. And a strip of red banda was included in the envelope along with a letter that said, I am about to start telling. I am about ready to start telling about you now. It will be just your word against mine. So cut to the 4th of July. The poet sent out more than 50 letters in a six-month period to local businesses, and the story is now making national headlines. At the beginning of June, Ruth received a letter from the poet postmarked from Oklahoma City, the first letter to be sent outside of Wichita. Captain Hill was hopeful when they saw when the Oklahoma Police Department Um, received an anonymous call from a woman regarding someone who resembled the poet. The police discovered that the man had worked in Wichita and had been fired from his company about seven months earlier, after which he moved to a trailer out west to Oklahoma City. His psychological profile also matched that of what they said the poet would. So the suspect was flown back to Wichita for a police lineup um, at the courthouse, but Ruth said that, no, he's the wrong person. He has similar like physical traits, but that is not the person who kidnapped me and who I've seen. So over the few months, the instead of letters, the poet was leaving an ice pick and a bottle of urine on the Finley's front porch, followed by a bag of feces. He left mo- Molotov cocktails, broken glass on the Finley's steps, broke the lock of their gate, sliced open their garden hose, left firecrackers, cigarettes, hair and matches, and trash in their mailbox. Ruth found a rock wrapped in the poet's signature red bandana in the backyard, along with a pair of wire cutters. So he was leaving, like, physical items at this point besides letters. Yeah. Wait, I thought they had a security cam- 
camera at their house now. They did just in the back, I think. I think they only had one. And I think that once when the poet kind of calmed down because he would go in spurts, I think when he would calm down, they would take the security camera away. And then once this activity would start up again, I think maybe they added the security cameras back because on Mm -hmm. and off again, there was um, detectives in their house when activity would pick up and then they would say, okay, we're, we're chilling on this. He seems to be calm, whatever. So in Christmas of 1980 ruth and ed were watching tv in their basement and uh apparently a wreath hanging outside of their front window was set on fire the heat of the flames um this was on the inside of their house i guess the heat of the flames crept cracked open the window um with a large boom running upstairs ed knocked the wreath to the ground with a baseball bat after stomping out the flames he grabbed a pair of garden shears tore it off um into tore it off threw it outside yelling that he was going to kill the poet So he was like, I am fucking done. It just threw this smoking hot reef out. So um, in March, the poet wrote that he was going to kill Ruth at the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And on April Fool's Day, pieces of concrete were flung into the the Finley's front porch. And they were just laying on the front porch. But neither the neighbors or Ruth actually saw anything suspicious this whole time. No one actually like saw this guy. So, despite the hundreds of hours and police work that Hill, Drowski, and other officers put into this case, um, they were no closer. They had no fucking clue who this guy was. So, police chief Richard Lamunion, <laughs> remind me of Funyuns, Richard Lamunion, um, he was a very highly respected, well-liked admin who, um, he basically gave his detectives free reign over their cases. He faced a lot of questions over this case of why haven't you caught the poet? Are the poet and BTK the same person? Why haven't you caught BTK? Why is this happening in Wichita? Because we have BTK doing his thing. We have the poet doing their thing. They're similar but different. Poet is targeting one person. BTK is targeting all people. So there's a lot going on in Wichita at this point. So on Friday, September 4th of 81, Droutsky... um, approached Lamunion with an update and the poet sent in a new letter that said um, after taking care of Ruth, he was going after Lamunion's wife, Sharon. So he knew the make of Sharon's car. The poet knew the path she drove on the way home from work. Uh, Lamunion decided that time has come to step away from his admin role and take a more personal interest in this case. Instead of letting other detectives oversee it, he's like, I'm stepping in. Mm -hmm. I'm taking over. Please so say they're he gonna took, set up a sting. Well, he took over all he took all of the case files and he took a weekend and he combed through every single thing that they had on on the poet. Every document, every incident, everything Ruth said, everything Ed said, all of the video, audio, all of that. He looked at everything with a fine tooth comb. By the time he got to work that next week, he said he knew the identity of the poet oh my god so on friday september 11th lamunion called a meeting of 16 of his officers into a windowless basement room at the county courthouse this room was used as like a bunker in case anything would happen he did not want he it was a panic room he did not want anyone in the police station to hear about this he only wanted people to hear about what he had to say because he didn't want this leaking in case it would ruin the investigation okay Mm -hmm. this is so exciting yeah so um (laughs) 
Lamunian wanted to um, keep the meeting confidential. He was not one for drama or formalities. Lamunian took his seat at the head of the table and said, the poet is Ruth Finley. Wait, what? The poet is Ruth Finley, is what he said. Okay. And he stated the following reasons. There has never been a single witness to any of Ruth's encounters with the poet, though they all occurred in public places. The Finleys lived on a dead-end street with very little traffic, yet none of the neighbors or station police officers have ever spotted the poet, nor were any footprints ever discovered. Detectives found only a single set of footprints, Ruth's, in the park where she had supposedly maced her kidnapper she also said her kidnapper had struck her in the face with concrete but her face showed no sign of injury ruth called the central investigations office in the police department when she was stabbed why wouldn't she call 911 emergency and she got out of the car to make the phone call the back in the car to drive home how could she do that with a knife pretty much in her back Captain Hill received a letter from the poet as soon as he took over Ruth's case, but only Ruth, Ed, and the police knew Hill had assumed command of the case. As soon as the recording camera was placed um, in the birdhouse, which is where they put that camera, um, and that was a camera only the Finleys and the police were aware of, the, poem, the poet stopped appearing in Ruth and Ed's backyard. The poet's messages to Ed in the Eagle Beacon classified section stopped whenever the Finleys were on vacation and resumed as soon as they returned. Ruth was the only suspect who made any sense, Lemunyan said, unless it's Ed and I don't think it's him. Lemunyan felt that his lack of a personal relationship with um, Ruth provided him with the emotional distance to identify her. The friendship with his, the friendship that his detectives developed with the Finleys, like, had blinded them to reality he said in person mm-hmm. ruth was very kind very gentle very modest a little bit too normal um to suspect such behavior according to the detectives who had been working on this the question of whether or not ruth was genuinely crazy or just conniving remained to be like the question that needed to be answered so during this three-hour meeting lemonian told his officers that they would spend the next two weeks performing around the clock surveillance on the Finleys, instead of trying to figure out who the poet was, they would be surveilling the Finleys. Yeah. Um, so the officers would work 12-hour shifts. A van was situated at the service station in Eastgate Mall Shopping Center, two blocks from the Finleys' house, and that would serve as the command center. Lemunyan warned his men not to breathe a single fucking word of the surveillance to anyone, including any of their spouses, anything like this keeps locked and key. Yep. Um, if the media received any of this, of this tips, he said he would fire every single person in that room. So the detectives were shooketh by the news that Ruth might be the poet. Many of them thought Lemunyan was crazy. Um, They're like, what about all the experts, the doctors, the psychologists, the linguists who had studied um, the poet and Ruth or studied the poet's writing? They all had sworn that Ruth and the poet could not be the same person. But Lemunyan, in a more, he was a very self-confident man. He thought the experts were wrong. He said, I don't believe any of them and I don't believe anything that Ruth says. So after the meeting, Lemunyan, for the sake of procedure, again asked Dr. Schrag if Ruth could be the poet. That was the psychologist who did the hypnosis. Um, Dr. Schrag responded with a very firm no. Lemunyan then gave the medical reports to his own personal physician who agreed that Ruth's doc- with Ruth's doctors that it was physically impossible for Ruth to have afflicted the stab wounds. Still, Lemunyan remained very convinced that Ruth and the poet were the same person. 
So on Monday, September 14th, the surveillance of Ruth and Ed began. For the next two weeks, the police would document the Finleys' every single move. At least one police car and one helicopter would follow them at all times inside the command center. So Ed and Ruth thought that they were following them to make sure they didn't get hurt from the poet. Yeah. The police were like, no, bitch, we're following you. Okay. Yeah. So inside the command center at um, Eastgate Mall, two officers watched through a camera with like a long range lens. The lens was fixed on mailboxes just opposite of their vehicle. So um, they were figuring this is where if if Ruth was mailing these letters, this is where she was doing it because she sure as shit wasn't putting them in her mailbox and flipping up the flag. Okay. Right. So three days later, the police helicopter provided the first break in the case. At 8.30 a.m., Ed steered his black Oldsmobile into Eastgate Mall parking lot, stopped at the mailbox. Ruth reached out the passenger side window, placed the mail in the slot, and they drove off. The helicopter um, pilot didn't know exactly what just happened because he was way up in the sky, but he um, instructed the officers of what happened and basically we need whatever mail that was just put in. Yeah. At 1.30 p.m., 30 minutes before the mail was to be picked up, the postal inspector called the police, or was called by the police, opened the mailbox, got out the contents of the mailbox. Um, the police took him to the downtown, took him to the downtown police station, gave it to Drowski and a detective from Vice and to Narcotics to see if see what was going on. The detectives got five pieces of mail laying in front of them on top of the mailbag. One was a personal letter from the Finleys, two were bill payments from the Finleys, and two of the letters were from the poet, one addressed to Ruth and one addressed to a TV station. They opened the letters. Inside, it said Hickory Dickory Dock, and then they read further, and it said, The name on his face is Smock, heat of the iron for the brand, corroborate for games planned, Hickory Dickory Dock. So the problem with this is... The helicopter saw someone drop the mail in, but they don't know if anyone else dropped mail in between the helicopter Before seeing it and them yeah. getting the mail. Yeah. So this didn't pr- provide undeniable proof. Mm-hmm. A few days later, September 26th, there was a Saturday, the Finleys returned to Eastgate Mall mailbox at 4.15 p.m. Detectives snapped uh, pictures of Ruth's arm extended out into the passenger window, now that they knew they needed to keep close eye on this as she dropped letters into the slot. Literally, as soon as Ed drove away, the uncover, the undercover police car pulled up in front of the mailbox to block anyone from accessing it. They popped a hood, and these dudes just pretended that their car like was broke down in front of the mailbox, basically, so no one could get in and out. Yeah. They called the postal worker, who um, opened it up, and detectives got the letters that were sitting right on top. There were four letters from the Finleys. They were grouped together in the pile, a utility company bill, a payment to J.C. Penney's, a personal letter, and a poet letter addressed to Ruth. When the detectives had finished, the Postal Service um, resealed the envelopes and they delivered them, per usual, to Ruth and Ed and all the other businesses. The two bills were sent to their destinations. Um, the police then retrieved those letters after they were mailed out as evidence. The next morning, the Finleys found the poet letter and Ed, um, following the long-established procedure, got them, gave them right to the police. So the police knew he would give them back. So they just kind of yeah. were like business as usual. Detectives right. um, searched the city for samples of Ruth's handwriting on bills to businesses from her workplaces to make a match of what Ruth's handwriting looked like to what the poet's handwriting looked like. On Monday, September 28th, the police also began the process of obtaining search warrants for the Finley's house. 
Um, although the police were now very certain that Ruth was the poet, there was still no very physical evidence to tie her to the letters, just speculation that she was, um, and they needed evidence for an arrest. So on Wednesday, Chief Lemunyan and his wife Sharon returned from a police convention in New Orleans to find another poet letter waiting for Sharon in their mailbox. Excuse me. The letter had been mailed from Southwest Southwestern Bell on Friday, one day before the police began monitoring the mailbox in the company's lobby. So she had the balls to mail this from her company's mailbox. Wow. So on this piece of paper, the lower half of the page was torn. So the next day, the police went to her work, got the contents of her garbage, found a piece of paper that matched exactly to the torn piece on Sharon's letter that she got from the poet. They had what they needed. The investigation was complete. The only remaining question they had was whether Ed Finley had been involved in this whole thing for the last three Mm -hmm. years. On Thursday, October 1st, 1.15 p.m., Ed came. Ed was summoned to the fifth floor city hall where he had been told there was another poet letter to pick up so this was not out of the ordinary for him he he went to the police station often at this point he was taken into an office in the special investigation section where he was met by um captain hill and another detective detective jack leon newcomer to the case the police hoped that detective leon's fresh perspective would bring an element of objectivity to the questioning so hill and leon brought ed into the ed into the interview room he was read his rights which is a little weird but Mm -hmm. ed did not question the police he was told not to question police he was like this is just another formality we're ramping up the investigation a little bit more So Hill and Leon began interviewing Ed, asking him to detail his early years, his childhood, family, career as an accountant. He answered the questions, very truthful, very concise. Um, And he was also asked to walk step by step what has been happening in the poet from his perspective, like what's what's going on here. So um, he walked through... um, starting at the stay of the hospital in 77 to the poet's most recent letter was when they saw the beginning of the poet investigation was when he was in the hospital so hill said it's coming down today we know who the poet is ed was fucking thrilled he's waited years for this he's like i hope the hell you do and he's like let's go get him so the detective laid out pictures and said first we want you to look at some pictures they presented ed with the color photographs of ruth mailing four letters in the from the Finley's Black Oldsmobile at the mall. One of those is a poet letter, he said, um, the detective said. Uh, the detective then said, I can verify that she has mailed five poet letters in the last two weeks. Ed said, you have got to be kidding me. And they said, no, I'm not kidding. I wish the hell I was. Um, Hill told, told Ed about the materials that the police had found in Ruth's office. Ed sat silently, stunned, obviously, And Hill said, the poet is Ruth. And Ed only said, apparently in a very hushed tone, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) So Hill assured Ed that the police weren't mad at Ruth. They simply wanted to make sure that she received the help that she obviously needed. And they needed to clear Ed. So they had him take a polygraph test, which he passed. They already figured that Ed wasn't a part of this just by like his, his... how shocked he was yeah um but they just needed to clear him so they had him take a lie detector test 
uh, 5 p.m. that afternoon, Lieutenant Drowski um, met Ed, in, or sorry, met Ruth in the lobby of her work, uh, asked if she would come to the police station to examine mugshots, a ritual she was very familiar with. So they took her to the same room where Ed, room where Ed had been questioned in just hours before. Ed was no longer there. He was at home. Um, they had not seen each other, so they had not spoken. Um, and Hill and Leon were waiting in that room. Hill began by explaining to Ruth her legal rights, and then, as he did with Ed, asked her to walk through life from early childhood up into the events of the poet. Although Ruth, like Ed, didn't really understand why he had recited the rights or why he wanted to go into um, f like material that they should have already known about, she still did what she was told to do. Um, Ruth Hill. So then Ruth and Hill started talking. So Ruth Hill said. Um, as she described the poet's activities. Are you or Ed, um, the poet, could you have done either of these things? We've discussed that, Ruth said mildly. We've said, you know, they probably suspect one of us at this point. So <laughs> after Ruth finished, finished her narrative on that, Hill decided to change up his tactics. Up until this point, he played like good cop, basically, a helpful questioner. Uh, now, he placed a pile of poet letters on the table and said, have you ever written any of these? And she said she didn't. He said, what if I call you a liar? Because I got evidence that shows that you have. Ruth Ugh. was shocked. Ruth was like, Mike, how dare you? Like, shocked by his accusation. Mm -hmm. um, so he pressed on and said, now do you want to keep up this game, your lying game? And Ruth said, when did I mail those letters? She didn't remember the pictures. Like, she didn't remember doing that. Hill showed her the surveillance photo, and she didn't say anything besides, I don't remember doing this. He said, it's time to tell me why. I'm not mad at you. I just want to know why you're doing this. And Ruth replied with, no. He said, do you need some help? And she said, yes. He said, why did you make up a story about your abduction? Ruth answered, starting to cry, and said, I don't know. He said, did you stab yourself? And she said, I don't know. Hill asked about the assault in Fort Scott when she was 16 years old when a man had um, branded her legs, thinking maybe she made that up too um, and had branded herself. As Hill continued his questioning, Ruth admitted that she, in fact, did write the poet's letters. She placed the butcher knife in her office lobby's phone booth. She'd left an ice pick and urine and feces on her porch. She'd siphoned gas for Molotov cocktails from her car. She said that on the day of her supposed abduction, she had taken a bus to Twin Lakes, then walked to the river to leave her sweater and shoes for the police to discover. But even as she was recounting all of these details, Ruth still wasn't really sure that they were real. She was just telling Hill the most logical possibilities in her mind at this point. She had no memory of any of the things that she was describing. But Hill was angry, and Ruth was terrified of anger, and she just wanted to please him. So mm -hmm. the only thing she knew for sure was that she had done those horrible things because Hill was telling her so. So Ruth said that she did stab herself in the car that summer at um, East Town Mall, uh, he asked, did you mean to hurt yourself as bad as you did? She said, I don't know. She also didn't know um, what was going through her mind when she wrote the poet letters. She didn't know how long it took her to write them. The only memory she really had felt like they were outside of her and they belonged to someone else. So at 9 p.m. that night, after four hours of questioning, Ruth was put in a squad car. Um, Ed was then beside her in the squad car. So... Um, 
they were both taken to St. Joseph's Hospital, where she was placed under a 24-hour um, psychiatric hold. Meanwhile, Wichita authorities were deciding whether or not to press charges. The case of the poet had cost the police department at this point $370,000. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. And some of the detectives were, like, sympathetic to the obvious psychological issues that she was going through. Chief Lemonian mainly, was like, she's a criminal and we need to punish her. She cost this department almost a half a million dollars at this point. Like, if this were to happen today, that would easily be a million. Oh, yeah. Like, that's insane. Um, After reviewing Ruth's psychology report, the Cedric County District Office announced that he would not be, that they would not be pursuing um, criminal prosecution because her actions of the poet were not malicious. On Friday, October 26th of 1981, Ruth gave her first public statement since confessing um, to the police. She said, I think I may have died and gone to hell. I think I'm coming back, though. Seven days later, Ruth entered a a twice-a-week therapy um, sessions with Dr. Andrew T. Pickens. He was a 38-year-old graduate of St. Louis University Medical School and a psychoanalyst. So under Dr. Dr. Pickens' care, Ruth began uncovering repressed memories of a Depression-era childhood on a farm in rural Richards, Missouri. As part of her therapy, Ruth composed lengthy, lengthy poems. She initially found those to be a bit more comfortable of a way to express her emotions than speaking about them face-to-face. At first, Ruth told Dr. Pickens that her childhood had been um, just impoverished but normal, and yet the poems she wrote about about those years were filled with images of like violence. She kept on having visions of a red bandana from her childhood, which for some unknown reason filled her with like revulsion, like it just made her sick. After three months of repeated attempts, Ruth and Dr. Pickens uncovered the source of Ruth's terror. When she was a girl, an adult neighbor and family friend had used a red bandana to tie her up. Later, he took her to his barn and shoved the bandana into her mouth as he sexually abused her. The neighbor continued abusing her for almost a year, producing um, in Ruth enormous feelings of guilt. Her parents punished her whenever she ran away and cried when the man would visit the farms, the family's like farm. Ruth was convinced that the abuse was her fault. She was convinced that she was a bad person and a bad, bad daughter, a bad girl, and that she deserved the assault that was happening. And the man had threatened to kill her if she told anyone about their secret. So during these assaults, Ruth dealt with her horror by, as she put it, floating off into heaven. She could see what was happening to the girl down below, basically. And somehow it wasn't so bad if she was taking herself out of it, if she was just watching it. So this is actually a common occurrence among victims of childhood trauma. It's known as disassociative disorder. Sufferers experience a disconnect between their identity, their consciousness, their actions, and their surroundings. Um, this disassociative state allows them to escape reality and hold like that traumatic experience at bay and basically repress it. So Ruth kept all of these memories of her childhood of sexual abuse buried for 43 years until Dr. Pickens believed the stress of Ed's hospitalization for a possible heart attack and the background talk going on of BTK had forced her repressed trauma to surface. However, the branding attack in Fort Scott always maintained was very real. So that actually did happen. So Ruth dealt with all of this emotional trauma that 
surfaced during the hospitalization and BTK stuff by creating another self called the poet. It wasn't split personality disorder. The poet was not a fully developed personality or an entirely separate identity, but an alternate consciousness. One Ruth had no memory or awareness of when in her regularly conscious state. So it was proven that Ruth actually was the poet through these sessions. She was able to recover memories of writing these letters. Um, Ruth spent the next um, seven years in intensive therapy with Dr. Pickens. Ed and her kids were by her side. Her siblings were by her side during this whole thing being supportive. Chief Lemunian, however, remained doubtful, saying, I think she's lying. She knew everything she was doing. Maybe something happened to her in her childhood, but not what she says. So he may have broke the case, but he's a fucking dick. Well, okay. yeah, he he's not a psychologist, so exactly. that's, not, that's not his area of expertise. Say that. Exactly. It's still unclear how she stabbed herself because all of the doctors were very firm. Like, she couldn't have done that. Like, how did she mm-hmm. stab herself? There's no way she yeah. could have. But she knows that she made up the abduction. Yeah. So she, even though it says it's impossible, she must have figured out a way to stab herself. But, and what about the phone calls, though? Like, she was making up the phone calls that she herself got, but what about the phone calls where her husband would pick up the phone and there was no one there? That's what I can't figure out. So she worked at a phone company. So... Can you, like, set up automated calls? That is the one. So at the end of this, I was going to bring that up. Because I cannot figure out. So when the, I don't, I wonder if they had two phone numbers. You know how you could call your own house from a different phone? Yeah. In the same house? They they had two telephones in the house. Yes. And she called from the downstairs one and he answered and she hung up really quick. Yep. Could have been. I think that's the most logical explanation. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so Lemonian was an asshole. He may have broken the case, which good for him, but he's an asshole. So eventually Ruth uh, felt like healed enough after seven years of therapy to like tell her story to local news stations, hoping it would help survivors. She began more be, to be more comfortable talking about her trauma and not bottling up her emotions. And ev- pretty much everyone is very supportive of what happened. Um, there were never any charges pressed on Ruth, even though she wasted a lot of fucking money. Um, and she never wrote poetry again after, after this whole situation. <laughs> I know. Okay. Uh, on, on June 10th of 2019, Ruth Finley passed away at the age of 89. Wow. That was and a that wild is, ride. I, I know. I know. Did you think Dang. it was Ruth? No. <laughs> I know. I thought I thought that the that they were gonna like, you know, because they said that like he, he was gonna kill. He said he was gonna kill her at the St. Patrick's Day parade or whatever. Like I thought they were gonna like set up a sting or something or like set up a sting where like it, it's like sort of the same situation where she's in like a basically empty parking lot or something and like police are like hiding behind dumpsters or something. Like I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a wild ride. You see why I I have taken so long to do this case, because it's a lot. (laughs) It is a lot. It is a lot. Also, when you were saying that detective's name, Lemunian, is that what his name was? Yeah. (sighs) Okay, I used to work with this older lady. Yeah. And uh, she was probably about 70 years old. And um, 
it was her birthday one day, and I was like, what are you going to do for your birthday? Have any plans? And she's like, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to have my son's going to grill me a steak. We have some Philly Munions. <laughs> Filet Mignon. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Philly Munions. Philly Munions. Oh, my God. I love that so much. Forever Philly Munions. Uh, what's the Missy Elliott song? Sierra. Um, I like filet, filet mignon. I'm nice and young. Best believe I'm number one. One, two, step. Sierra. I yeah. like the so, Philly onions. Best believe I'm number one. <laughs> she was, like, serious, though, too. She was, like, not being cute about pronouncing it. Like, she was, like, being serious. Have you ever seen the um, things boomers say and they can't pronounce anything? Like, jalapeno, like, jalapenos? jalapenos <laughs> and they have you ever seen the tiktok where old people can't pronounce chipotle they say chipotle oh my god all no. old people my sister you... used to work she, if she ever she'll never listen to this so that's fine um but so she used to work at subway when they came out with a chipotle southwest southwest sauce she could not say it. chipotle southwest it's like tish <laughs> it's chipotle yeah <laughs> not chipotle Older people say Chipotle. There's a whole TikTok series dedicated to it. You next time you come across one of those, send it to me. Okay, I could probably just. I love the ones of the people from not from Wisconsin pronouncing Wisconsin. Oconomowoc always gets them. Yeah, Oconomowoc always gets them. But then again, that's rubber me in California. I can't pronounce California names. uh, Yeah, or yeah, yeah. and when they pronounce um, Waukesha, they're like Waukesha. Yep. Hell, Wakisha. <laughs> yep. Yep. Or, or I don't like when people say Wisconsin because they go Wisconsin. They add a T. Wisconsin. Have you ever heard that? Um, if you listen, also, Wisconsin. They say the O really weird in Wisconsin because they're like they're like Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah. They say Wisconsin. I, we barely listen. We barely say the W. Right. Barely. Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Scanson. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So thanks, guys. I know that was a long that was a long haul. Thank you for sticking in there. Uh, I hope that it had a good twist to it. That it was Ruth. Oh, that was a good twist. Yeah. 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 It was good. It was good. When I actually was researching this, I was like, "Is this made up?" But it wasn't. She was a real person, and this really happened. Wow. Well, thanks, guys. Please leave us that five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. Tell us any cases that you want us to cover on our social medias or contact at perfectstranglers.com. And we will chat with you next Thursday. Bye, everyone.